I'm Kathy Jollard. And I'm Dan Schifrin. And this is The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. The Space Between examines the places between traditions, ideas, and identities where creativity happens. Our guest today is writer Ellen Ullman, whose new novel, By Blood, has just been published to wide acclaim. Her 1997 memoir, Close to the Machine, recently re-released, is considered by many to be the most evocative and incisive record of the experience of working with computer code. Her second book, a novel called The Bug, also just re-released, was described by the New York Times as thrilling and fearless. Ellen's experience as a software engineer and as a writer has given her a unique position to record and understand the texture of the human experience in our digital age. Welcome, Ellen. My pleasure. So, first question is about your new book, By Blood. So this book is about an unnamed professor who finds himself in San Francisco in the mid-70s overhearing a therapy session in this building, and this therapy session sets him off on this crazy search. I'm interested about the, the background of California at this moment in time, uh, and I'm interested in part because we have this exhibition of California Dreaming, which is about Bay Area Jewish history. And people think about the Bay Area as a kind of a promised land, as a kind of an Eden or utopia, but there's very much also a dystopian dimension to it. So I'm wondering for you, when you came to California from the East Coast, whether you saw California as utopian or dystopian or both, and how that played any role and when and how you set the stage for your novel. Uh, I didn't come here from New York City, where I was born. I came from the pastoral lands of central New York State, where I went to Cornell University. Uh, Dairy farming, hills and dales, nice and quiet. Uh, Landed in San Francisco in 1972. Um, I needed a place to go to get out of college town, get away from my family, to come out as a lesbian. Uh, It was a destination in those days for that, uh, still is. And um, I thought, where am I? I wound up in an apartment in the Mission District, a tiny place near Valencia Street, which is now trendy, but I assure you it was not in 1972. city was kind of rough and gritty. Patty Hearst uh, still had, not, had been kidnapped and still not found, and any woman walking through the Mission District in those days who looked vaguely odd, which I did, uh, got cruised by the cops. Um, Women got pulled off the street and pulled into vans for questioning. Let's see, the Zodiac Killer had resurfaced. Um, There were the zebra killings, which I don't know if you remember. Um, Black Muslims uh, were encouraged uh, to go and indiscriminately kill white people across the city, Um, particularly uh, women and children. You got higher marks for that city was terrorized. I mean, actually, the police chief for the first time in history, I believe, uh, advised people not to go out after dark. So was this the promised land? Uh, The 70s in San Francisco were rough, gritty, and scary, but I wonder if that was not true of other cities during that era. It was the time of the great stagflation. Uh, mm, The country was just barely getting over losing the Vietnam War. Utopia? I don't think so. (laughs) On the other hand, um, on a personal level and finding a woman's community, it was. Uh, Not a utopia, because that was a complicated world as well. Great roiling uh, arguments over who was middle class and who was working class, um, separatism or assimilation into the wider culture. Nothing was easy. I'm just curious, because I I live in the Mission on Valencia Street now as well, and... um, 
yeah, despite all that, you stayed. Uh, how how did you see it change over the years, and why did you choose to stay? My life was here. After a while, these were my friends. We moved to a, a nicer flat. I um, put in a dark room. I was doing photography at the time. I got an actual real job being a media person at San Francisco General Hospital, a special project, so I had a job. Um, after being a switchboard operator and uh, pumping gas, two professions um, that have become technologically about as obsolete as you can get. Every year I told myself, if I stay, uh, if I go back to New York, and then year by year by year you build a life, uh, you make connections, you have jobs, family, friends, next thing you know you've spent most of your adult life in in a town. Speaking about jobs, Close to the Machine is about your experiences being a software engineer. Um, can you say something about how you got into that business? What was your transition from pumping gas to uh, debugging code? Switchboard operator is actually more direct, but I'll <laughs> tell you more about what a great switchboard operator I was. Um, I needed to work, and I had fooled around with early microcomputers. Um, I'd been involved back in Cornell days with the early port pack movement in video. We produced local video shows. And for me, computers were kind of just another swell machine. What can you do with this? I had no idea. I needed a job. Um, 1980s business computing was exploding. Um, anyone who knew what a compiler was was offered a job. I went out in three interviews, got three job offers. I had never intended it to be anything else but another decent job. Uh, Well, I did photography and video, um, but I found it so engaging, so engrossing, so um, overwhelmingly interesting that it became a lifetime profession. You talk in Close to the Machine about, I think you say, the weird logic that people who program fall into. Um, Can you say something else about what it was about um, that job that was so compelling for you? Weird logic dreamers. Uh, it's, It's a strange experience to have to take all these complex thoughts and then speak in this very structured and bounded uh, language that a computer can understand. Um, Whether it's to a chipset, a device driver, uh, an operating system interface, uh, other software, um, it's structured. And there's only so many things you can say. However, you have to do a great deal with it. And it's this uh, strange and glorious disjunction between how human beings think and what we want to do with our tools, homo faber, the, the tool makers is who we are, and this, believe it or not, still very limited thing on the other side um, through which we want to express uh, how we like to be in the world. Do you see yourself as being caught between kind of literature, which is so, you know, expressive, only bound by your imagination, and uh, computer language, which is so restricted, or do you see them as informing each other? Uh, They are completely different experiences for me. Um, The wonderful thing about language is that it's imprecise, um, shaded. You can say something totally off, and yet people, just by looking at you, will get it, or by... um, a tone of voice or a tone that you intimate through the language. Um, there would be no good prose. Or there would be no poetry if language weren't so imprecise and um, open to interpretation. Code is not interpreted. Um, its meaning is what it does, its function. Um, if it's uh, unclear, it's bad code. You know, if it 
It's not precise. It's broken. Um, sometimes, though, um, when you read some code, a beautiful algorithm, you can get some sense of the sensibility um, that was that saw that structure, and there's a certain elegance in that and an intimation of the other person. I was struck reading Close to the Machine and hearing your beautiful descriptions of that, um, figuring something out, like that the uh, creative problem solving that just feels like any kind of creative flow where you're just completely in the thing that you're trying to solve. And I wonder, um, and the same thing must happen in your writing as well, maybe figuring out what to do next with the character. Do you approach this same this, that problem solving differently? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, by blood, I mean, I've heard writers say a uh, character took them over. I always thought, mm, yeah, of course, right? <laughs> in this case, this really happened to me. Um, it takes place in this weird office building, and I actually have a writing office in this weird building. And there's a thin door separating me from this other office, and there was a matchmaking service on the other side. And one night, I could hear these couples being introduced and their halting attempts to start some conversations. And I thought, well, this is weird. Um, I did tell the proprietor about this. She's like, oh, well, we're moving in a month. Don't, don't bother. But it presented this situation to me. And then one night, the voice of this narrator came in. Um, it's slightly different. I wrote the first 20 pages, but it's only slightly different from what I wrote then. In the late summer of 1974, while on leave from the university, I sought to secure for myself an office, and blah, blah, blah. And I really tried to get out of this. I, my intention was to tell a story about a young woman who was born in the displaced persons camp at Bergen-Belsen, and an adoptee who would find her origins there. I knew someone who had been born in the DP camp, and the story fascinated me. And um, I thought, oh, God, I've got this weird narrator, and the story I meant to tell seemed so far away, and I tried to escape him, but I think as a writer, I had not sure I'd ever before spoken so fluently through a character. And once I settled into that voice and I just could get, kept going with it, I thought, well, first of all, this is crazy. I have a narrator who can't see any of the characters. It all takes place overheard by sound. That's nuts. And how do I get out of this? He's really strange, but once it rolled on, it rolled on. And um, it, it presented this strange problem of not being able to see. Uh, I think part of it is that I have this horribly acute hearing. And in many ways, I think I see through sound. So here is this whole story in which he has to imagine what these people look like. And he, matter of fact, he voids seeing them in their physical flesh because he thinks that will somehow invade the imagination he has of them and he'll have to revise everything that he thinks he knows about them and the whole story will evaporate on him. This is one reason why people often don't see movies based on their favorite books. Exactly. Because they don't want those images to eclipse what's already in their mind. Exactly. Um, uh, Gabriel Masi, um, um, Marquez? Yeah. Yeah. He... Um, he was asked many times if, if he would do a film of uh, 100 Years of Solitude. And he resisted and he resisted. He said, because once you see an actor playing, you know, Buen Dia, you'll never be able to imagine it for yourself. And I thought, that's exactly right. As a matter of fact, 
on uh, close to the machine, um, City Lights wanted to put a picture of me on the back. And I went, you know, I'm a kind of a character in this story. And I thought, I would like to leave this I voice in there to the imagination of the reader. Yeah, the sight and sound dichotomy is really interesting in the book. And I it occurred to me, this is Gwen Farfield for a moment, but, um, you know, in the Torah, when the Israelites are about to receive the Bible, um, there's this moment of communal synesthesia where it says that the people saw the words. So there's this kind of mixing up of sight and sound. Uh, and so I always associate that um, mistake or that transposition with um, a certain elevated spiritual state. I guess I'm just wondering a little more about um, this uh, perception or conflated perceptions you have with sight and sound and um, whether that's been uh, an issue in other things that you've written or whether that's percolated into the rest of your life in some way. It's been a plague to have this kind of hearing. I mean, I had a an audiologist say, I had the hearing of a three-day-old, and how do I live in this world? I said, well, with earplugs. Um, yeah, in the bug also, um, Ethan Levin, the programmer who disintegrates over his inability to solve this devil of a bug, um, also experiences it as sound. Um, water in the bones of the pipes, uh, the tannic clink of a manhole, you know, at the corner He's hearing these things in the, in the house. He's now alone in that he wishes he did not hear the invasive sound. There's a whole genre of um, literature about artists and painters and others who have synesthesia. I don't know. I'm just I'm, I'm fascinated with this. Uh, I mean, would you call that a kind of a synesthesia? Or is that maybe that's a misapplication of that term? I have no idea. I yeah. don't know. It's just the way I've been my whole life. So yeah. um, it seems utterly normal to me and what I give it any other term than I exist. I had a chance to hear you in, in Jaron Lanier talk uh, a little while back. Um, Jaron is a technologist who wrote You Are Not a Gadget, a recent best-selling book, and he wrote the introduction for the re-release of uh, Close to the Machine. And the two of you had this really interesting conversation where you were talking about this um, this continuum of sensibility in the technology world between, um, on the one hand, a kind of an idealist romantic dimension to it, humanist, um, and then on the other side is this kind of nerd-oriented, machine-like thing, maybe something like the singularity where the machine is bigger than our experiences and that um, the culture goes back and forth between those two poles in some way. I have a sense of where you might find yourself within that spectrum, but could you say anything else about that discussion, or am I correctly describing what those two poles are? Uh, Yes. um, I had the great pleasure of uh, reviewing You Are Not a Gadget, uh, the Washington Post, and it was delightful because he threw into a great heap of things he hated, singularity and hive mind and uh, all of that idea that what em- would emerge above us is a being greater than we are. He actually uh, describes Larry Page as believing, given enough participants, in, uh, that the Internet will become alive, um, something that Lanier, I think, correctly identifies as a religious vision, uh, creating a supreme being. Uh, Kevin Kelly's new book, um, uh, What Does Technology Want? I, I heard him speak about this about 10 years ago, and it was really the most horrifying thing. And he actually, on his personal website, he talks about technology having a consciousness and a kind of a destiny that that human beings must fulfill somehow. Um, 
unabashedly saying this, look, we make the thing. And I think that's where uh, Jaron and I kind of come down. We're making this. It isn't making us. I mean, there's a certainly an interaction that happens and a societal change, but still it's it comes from a human sensibility. Funny, Hollywood is filled with these kind of science fiction dystopian visions of, you know, machines taking over, whether it's the Terminator or the Matrix films. And um, we're, we're kind of obsessed uh, in a way we almost want the machines to take over. We almost want to kind of give up control, which is in a way kind of what a religion is. You want to give up control to something that knows more than you. Uh, and whose destiny you can fulfill. It is a religious vision in a way. I think there is also rightly a fear um, because most people don't really know how to program what goes on in there. There's a mystification that goes on. You know, social media, they're sitting there and they're programming and things are happening. And there's this uh, complete mystification of what that process is. So... I am heartened by the idea that more and more people are learning how to program to one degree or another. That larger proportion of people alive who have a sense of what it is really that they can change, something they can affect, something they can work on, will, I'm hoping, break through that uh, sense of something beyond us. We were talking before about um, kind of issues of gender and like science and technology, and kind of a couple of things have happened in the last couple of years that... Um, brought that to the public consciousness in the way. One was Lauren Summers, the um, president of Harvard, who had said some unusual things about women and their capacity to um, understand technology or science, math. Yeah, we're bad at math. math. You know that. Yeah. Now, look, um, it was very important to me that the woman, the young patient in By Blood, she's studying econometrics, okay? She's a geek, and she doesn't find it's difficult. I mean, the thing is... Why are women told they have to be comfortable? I mean, mastery at anything requires a great deal of tumult and drive and difficulty. The idea that we will make women comfortable really bothers me. It's not the subject matter. It's the working in a world where there aren't enough women. That's the only difference. I mean, I worked in technology. There just weren't enough women around. And then later when there were, it was great. I mean, it's not that we needed help. It's that it softened this whole rather Aspergery world of guys sitting there, um, didn't have personal lives, just staring into screens, typing, typing, typing. That's not true at all. Okay, I have made wonderful friends among men who are technology people, really smart, funny. Uh, but there, there needs to be a critical mass of women to change it. It's not making the subject more accessible. It's just having more of us around. It's that simple. It's, so it's it's a social it's a social piece of it. It's a social piece, absolutely. I don't think that technology is gendered. I don't think that if women write code, it'll be more like mother's milk. I've worked with women who are so geeky. I mean, you know, one woman bragged, "I don't like anything on my walls at home. I want my visual field to be just clean and crisp." I mean, she was way out there, and she wrote great code. Um, can we return to By Blood? Yes. Uh, <laughs> great. So among the many other kind of interesting dimensions to the to the book and kind of interesting juxtapositions or pairings is um, I thought the idea of writing and therapy. Uh, and so I wanted to ask how the two things connect in your mind in ways in which, I don't know, I think about writing being kind of a therapeutic process. I know it's 
like that for me, and also ways in which therapy itself is a kind of a collaborative creating a story, a narrative. Uh, and I'm just wondering whether the two things seem linked in your mind in some organic way. Well, by blood, um, to me, was about genetic identity or, you know, how much are you tied to your to your background? Um, how much does that determine who you are? What is Jewish identity? Does it come through being born to a, a Jewish woman or is it something else? The narrator comes from a long line of suicides and uh, who have been very creative about the ways they've accomplished this. And he is a rather haunted person and he feels... As he puts it, he has the damp hand of ancestry upon him. And to that extent, yes, therapy is a question of how much can you create your life and how much do you uh, exercise the deep uh, patterns that you have grown up with uh, or how much you assimilate them and welcome them. They are definitely related. I think of something by uh, John Kabat-Zinn, the Zen teacher or psychologist who says uh, the story of your life is your story, not your life. Um, and I've been thinking also, uh, I just read uh, this book, Imagine How Creativity Works by Jonah Lehrer. And he talks about um, in our brains, um, the stories we tell about ourselves actually have a physiological analog. And in some ways, maybe John Kabat-Zinn is wrong. This, our story and our lives can be the same. They can be conflated in some way. Well, I think narrative is all, storytelling is all. I'm actually, for all my technology background, a really old-fashioned fiction writer. Um, once upon a time, I don't want to interact with fiction. I want a, somebody to tell me a story, and I lean back and receive in a very passive way or active re reception. If you think about even what dreams are, okay, it really is the brain doing a lot of housekeeping there. But somehow we have to make sense out of it. So we make up these weird stories. You know, we're constantly going, okay, what's the narrative here? Even though my brain is just firing, just pushing molecules around to solidify memory, even as you're dreaming it, you go, God, this is a strange story. But the, the impulse to make it into a narrative is, is deeply part of who we are. Character and story are, I think, how... We understand the world. I mean, Iliad, Odyssey, as far as you can go back to what we have of what human beings did before, they, they sang songs that were told stories. For a moment, I thought of, you know, code being, it's all text and no commentary. Oh, no, it's better if you put comments on it. Much better. Yeah. <laughs> the, the more comments the programmers left for you, this was sort of generosity. Oh, thank you. Mm. What did all those stars and pointers mean? So tell me, tell me more. This, I mean, my comment comes out of my utter lack of understanding of really what, what coding is. So can you explain, like, what, is, what, is, what, would, what would a commentary mean in the context of creating code? Well, one of the things I, I did in the bug was I put actual code samples in there. Not that people had to understand it exactly, but I want, it's like an illustration. Here, it's not this mystical thing. This is what it looks like. You don't have to understand it. It's, it's not text exactly. It's instructions. They're called statements, but they're instructions. Uh, and there is a big difference. I mean, it would be more like my saying, get up, turn left, walk to the door, you know, turn the knob to the left or the right. That's what it is. Um, the fact that it's called a language, and there's a big difference between that and natural languages. Obviously, 
more and more code has been written that seems to be a natural language. On the surface, you, 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 know, you hear Siri and it seems like she's really getting you. But underneath, if you go down through, it's, it's a series of instructions and data access. And some people say that's how we function the same way, oh, the brain's the data store and we retrieve and all that. The brain is not data. Research shows that to remember something, you actually need, you need the chemical in your brain that allows you to lay down new memories. So every time you remember something, you're rehooking it into other synapses. So you're reimagining it, re-understanding it. The only things that stay stored, like data, are the things you don't remember at all, the things you never think of. They just stay there. So you can see the, uh, how plastic uh, the human brain is. Um, memory is just this constant reevaluation in terms of everything you've learned and thought of in the interim. And now that's what makes it great, right? So these analogies to, you know, files and, you know, store, we have storage, and you bring it out of long-term storage into short-term storage. There are some analogies. Um, I think they really break down under examination. Of course, as you said about me and Jaron Lanier, we're on the humanist edge of it. We kind of don't want to give in to that mechanical view of human life. I'm interested in just what you're saying about the mutual influences of kind of language we use to describe how we work, people, and how people talk about computers. So, you know, you say we talk about the brain and the kind of files and things like that. And it seems like, on the one hand, we're using more and more computer language to talk about how our body functions, and we're also using more organic language to talk about how computers are. And um, Well, that seems natural to me. Yeah. I mean, because we use them so much, and technology is almost... It, it's so... It's so deeply integrated into almost every facet of what we do in the Western developed world. We have to remember there are lots of people out there who don't have this experience. Uh, it seems natural that there would be this sort of blending of, of terminology. Um, whether that means anything more than the words are banging around against each other, I don't know. There is a way that people think about themselves that I, is not like retrieval system, is not structured in that way. It, identity, you know, let's go back to by blood if I might. It's the sense of where do I belong, um, constantly shifting um, what our internal sense of ourselves in the world is, wondering where we come from, but actually never knowing uh, what that means. I actually think I set this book in the past to get away from all this terminology. Actually, also because the 70s were just so weird and, you know, had this strange gothic appeal. But it, there's a great freedom um, for me as a writer in getting out of that terminology, going to a time where uh, computers existed but were not ubiquitous and people could think of their relationships in other terms. Ellen Ullman, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you.